What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Dew Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to the final four is not on the schedule. He is Rod. I am Cameron. And Rod, I wish we were here previewing uh, Alabama, Michigan State in the Sweet 16 right now. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, as it worked out, it's looking back on it, it's like, man. That'd have been nice <laughs> to get past UCLA because then they got past BYU easily, and then they get Texas or Abilene Christian. Yeah. Well, so. it, look, I mean, we said it when the draw was announced, right? Yeah. That other than the fact that Michigan State had to play in the play-in game, it was a pretty good draw relative to some of the other elevens. Um, as it turned out, Michigan State the the play having to play in the play-in game was the flaw because they got beat. But uh, you're right. I mean, this was a year where, can you imagine if this Michigan State team had made a run to the Sweet 16? I mean, <laughs> yeah. it would have just, it would have almost erased everything that came before it. And it was very doable. You're right. Mm-hmm. Because let's be honest, they should have won the UCLA game. Uh, you know, who knows how the, these matchups would have played out. Abilene Christian, for example, I know UCLA just ran them out of the gym, but Abilene Christian's whole strength, the whole reason they beat Texas and that they were in the tournament at all anyway, is that they were number one in the nation in turnover creation. Now, UCLA didn't have a problem with that, but UCLA didn't have a big problem with turnovers all year. Michigan State, at times, really did. Mm-hmm. So would they have fared as well? Who knows? You know, but it, you drive yourself crazy. But I do agree with you. The opportunity was certainly there, given how things unfolded. So before we get into just like the season review um, and some news around the league coaching wise, um, yeah, and that's maybe we should highlight that the, the ultimate the ultimate purpose of this episode, although we're going to talk about other stuff at the top, is kind of a season in review, as you say, just yeah. looking back at MSU, the the macro sense of the season on a team level, and then talk about the individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. Interesting news potentially coming in for next year. We briefly touched on him last time, uh, but Tyson Walker, um, the transfer from Northeastern point guard, defensive player of the year in that conference. Um, right. Looks like he might be favoring Michigan State. He's going to announce, we're recording this on Friday night, he's going to announce uh, Saturday at mm-hmm. noon. And by all accounts, he's going to commit to Michigan State. And I say that for the following reasons. Uh, if you look at his final list, two of the schools that are on it are Vandy and Miami. Well, he's not going to either of those places. I'll about Michigan State. 
Then the other schools in the mix that you take a little more seriously were um, Texas. Well, Texas just lost their coach today, which we'll return to in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Shaka Smart taking the Marquette job and leaving Austin, which did not surprise me. I, I thought, uh, particularly after their loss to Abilene Christian in the tournament, I thought that was probably it. And, and no pun intended, a smart move by him, frankly, to get out of there ahead of the posse, because I think his, his time at Texas, if they weren't going to fire him this offseason, it was going to come soon anyway. Mm. Uh, but regardless, the fact that he's left for Texas suggests, you know, he's – Walker's not going to – he's not going to pick Texas, right? <laughs> uh, Maryland – Maryland is in an interesting situation – I would have when I saw them on his initial list. I thought, well, that's a school that's probably a contender here, uh, because ideally, you know, despite the fact that their backcourt guys played pretty well, um, Ayala isn't really a pure point guard, and I think they would be just fine with moving him off the ball a little more often. Um, but there's <laughs> there's been some word that Mark Turgeon may be looking at the Oklahoma job. Lon Kruger retired earlier this week. And I've talked about it on this podcast for at least a couple of years that I felt like that marriage of Maryland and Turgeon was, was just not going to hold mm-hmm. that they have really high expectations in that program. And rightly so, because it really does that, that program, I think you look at the natural recruiting turf, the fact that the school cares about the sport, they'll spend, all of that, they can make a case that Mark Turgeon has not produced at the level that they think they should, that that, that program should. Mm-hmm. Um, it's ironic we're talking about it because I think he just did his best coaching job, certainly of his Big Ten tenure, with getting that team to the tournament. They won a game when they got there. That was not a team in the preseason we were talking about as a likely tournament team. We had them down to near the bottom of the league. And he did a nice job with them. But nevertheless, you're hearing those rumors. You got to remember, Turgeon grew up in Kansas. He played at Kansas for Larry Brown. He then was a head coach at Wichita State before he took the uh, Maryland job. So he's from that part of the country. Mm -hmm. It would be a return home. You can win at Oklahoma. Um, You know, they've had a bunch of coaches. I went through this the other day. I was thinking about it. Since the early 80s, they've had four different guys who took them to the NCAA tournament. Um, Billy Tubbs, who was great there for a long time. Then Kelvin Sampson. Remember Michigan State had to beat one of his teams yeah. in the 99 tournament en route to the Final Four, if I remember correctly. Uh, that Eduardo Naha game when he banged it. <laughs> um, and then Jeff Capel, who was the coach uh, when Blake Griffin was there. Mm-hmm. And they were really good. And then Lon Kruger has taken them to a Final Four. So you can win in that job. So it's not like Turgeon would be stepping way, way down. He'd be going to another Power Five conference, one that's closer to home. And I kind of feel like it's sort of like the Shaka situation. It's like, do you go now when you have a job you like that you could get as a as a place to jump to? And I think he might. But if you if you believe in that, then you could see why Maryland wouldn't be leading in the race to sign Walker. And then ultimately Kansas, I think was the big competition, but um, there's been information coming from people who follow Kansas recruiting closely. And even if you weren't, if you were just looking at the way they're recruiting, 
they've been heavily recruiting a bunch of other guys, high school players and at least one other transfer. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that they're doing that tells me that uh, they're not likely to get them either. So by, by power of deduction, it looks like Tyson Walker is going to be a Michigan State Spartan come tomorrow. We'll see. But we're going to talk about him under the assumption that he does commit. If he doesn't, then you'll have wasted 10 minutes of your life listening to this. Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but he's a real – I mean, you're, I, I've spent some time looking at him, and I thought there were some things I liked when the interest was initially mentioned, but – I was skeptical, and, I, and there's still a part of me that's skeptical. Be skeptical. He's kind of small. I mean, he's not much bigger. He's really the same size as Lawyer. Maybe um, a bit taller. He's a bit taller. He's listed the same, but I think he looks to me to be more of a legit six foot. But you're right about the frame. This mm-hmm. is not a strong kid, and I noticed that too. That's one reason for skepticism. And then the, the other reason is something we talk about a ton here, the transfer up phenomenon. You know, can can you be expected to produce anywhere close to the level you did at the smaller school when you step into the Big Ten? Now, what shifted is that we're we're coming or winding down, rather, a season where that actually happened in the Big Ten to great success with Mike Smith at Michigan. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there are a lot of situations behind his that didn't work out. So I think those are the things you're – some of the things you're skeptical about, but I will also tell you, um, and we're going to go through it here. Um, this season, he got six cracks at high majors or high major plus opponents. I'm saying high major plus. They played Massachusetts twice, who's an Atlantic 10 member. Mm-hmm. I, I count that. As a, it's certainly a, a higher level than the CAA where, where he played at Northeastern. And we'll go through the numbers, but the short, the short answer there is he produced very well against yeah. a decent amount of high major opposition. Um, if you watch the clips, there are some definitely some things to like. And then I think where I ultimately land on this is if we were saying, look, the, the lineup next year, the only guys coming back are Foster Lawyer and A.J. Hogard at the point. And so Michigan State needs somebody that realistically can play 30 minutes a night or more. I would, I would be a little more, I would be questioning a little bit more how this is going to work out. I don't think that's the scenario mm-hmm. because they've got Jaden Akins coming in. Yeah. I'm not saying I expect it to be a position split, but the fact that you've got other options means I don't think you necessarily have to look at this guy as someone that you're leaning on to play Cassius Winston minutes. If he can and he does, great. But that makes me feel a little better about the likelihood of success if you set the bar there rather than, hey, this guy's got to be one of our best players right away. I think he can be a piece, and I like the odds of him being a piece for some reasons that we'll we'll talk about. Mm. Um, And if nothing else, I mean, if he's a good defender – that's just that's one thing you got well, going for you, for sure. That's you know it, it is. That's one of the things I wonder about though, because and I and I watched. I was fortunate enough. There's a there's a clip out there that's a 16 minute edited clip of his game against North Carolina this year, and it's cut in a way that allows you to get through it 
fairly quickly because it's basically just all scoring plays from both teams. Mm. Um, in watching that, I'm still left with some questions about the defense. I know he was an extremely high-level steals guy. Mm. He led this conference in steals. That's great, okay? Um, but we know that steals are not a big part of the Tom Izzo equation. Yeah. So now the steals I saw him getting, he wasn't like, you know, overplaying guys and traps or anything. They were legitimate quick hand steals. The, the, the ones I saw, which were only two, were steals that you could get in Michigan State's defense, theoretically. Mm. Yeah. You know, they weren't a result of a system, right? Um, but we know there are much bigger things to, to worry about at Michigan State than your steel totals. Yeah. Right. Um, I think what I did like, and we'll start there with defense, what I did like on clips and by virtue of his reputation, he looks like he can apply good ball pressure. Now, Michigan State's not a heavy ball pressure team, but when they've got guys who can do it at the point, you know, Tom Tom Nairn was an example, Travis Walton, They'll utilize that to some degree. And from what I saw, I think Walker has the quickness and the the savvy to be able to do that effectively. Um, what you worry about is size, basically. He's six feet. They list him at 155, and that looks about right. He's really light. Um, you worry about teams that can post him up. And I didn't see any of that from North Carolina. I don't know how much that happened to him in the regular season, but we know in the Big Ten, at times this year with Foster Lawyer, for example, teams went to that and had some success, right? Yeah. Um, that would at least until you see otherwise, you'd, you'd wonder about that. I also wonder about, because of the frame, how able he's going to be to get over the top of screens. The plus side for him is that he looks to be very quick, and he also has a savvy about him. You know, some guys you watch and you can just tell, well, they know how to play. Mm-hmm. And I think that might help him in that department, offset the lack of strength. But it, if we're being objective in this, that would be something else that you would look at and say, okay, that's a question that's going to need to be answered. Um, but I think, I, look, I'd rather have the guy being his conference's defensive player of the year than not. <laughs> yeah. <certainly>. Right? <laughs> yeah. I mean all things considered you're like, okay, and that that was the first thing when I saw that before I'd ever seen clips when it was just first mentioned. That was the first thing that made me think, hmm, this one may have legs. A lot of times you see this this stuff, you know, interest in a transfer and you don't always know how real it is. But when I see that a guy was his conference's defensive player of the year, I think, well, that's a guy that theoretically you can see why Michigan State would be interested in him as opposed to some other guys, mm. you know, because it looks like he's got the potential to play both ways, and that's kind of important at Michigan State. Um, so I like that. I just don't know if I would expect him to be, you know, a first-team All-Big Ten defender next year. Because there are some things that might be issues at the Big Ten level that weren't as important in the CAA. You know, time will tell. But I think there's at least reason to be encouraged there. And I don't think he'll be a bad defender. I certainly saw an ability to stay in front of players. You know, he's got the technique and the athleticism to be able to do that. 
it's again, it's going to be size and strength, I think, are the bigger things to wonder about. And time will tell. What about his offensive game? Well, look, he put up big numbers. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, he averaged, and let me. He had 27 up. points against North Carolina. Yeah, well, we'll go, we'll go into that because I think it's important to break it down. You know, his freshman year, he was good. He averaged double digits, 10 points a game, but he really exploded this season as a sophomore. That's the thing. This is a guy who theoretically has three years of eligibility left, too. Yeah. So he's not a, this isn't a grad transfer deal. This is a guy who could be a multi-year part of the picture for MSU. Um, over his season as a whole, he averaged 18.8 points per game. So that's a good number. Shot 44% from the floor overall, 35% from three, 77% at the line. Um, he had two, three, four, five, six, seven. Let me see. Uh, 92 divided by 19. He averaged almost five assists per game. So that's a good number. He averaged almost two steals per game. That's a good number. Again, not as important as Michigan State, perhaps, but you'd rather have it than not. The one negative that I saw was the assist to turnover ratio was not great. He had 92 assists on the season. I said 4.8 something per game. He also had 63 turnovers per game. So that's a little more than three per contest. So you don't 3.3 actually. So you don't necessarily love that number. I will tell you from watching clips, both highlights from the whole season and specifically that Carolina game, um, he is a dynamic player. His his usage rate, it's it's funny because putting some of his ad, advanced analytic stats next to Cassius Winston's mm-hmm. in Cassius' senior year, there's a lot of similarity actually. The usage rate was slightly higher than Cassius's. So that means he had the ball in his hands doing things a little bit more than Cassius did as a senior. So that tells you how important he was to his team. Um, and he can make things happen. He's, again, you see it on offense, very quick. Great handle. It's, it's actually, I'll tell you what's funny. In some ways, certain elements of his game remind you of nobody else in recent Michigan State history more than Rocket Watts, except he's making more shots. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got a, a very, very good handle, it looks to me. He can use it, that and his quickness he uses to create space for himself as a shooter, kind of step back jumpers. He's got that part of his game. What I really liked and what Michigan State had, didn't have this year at all is you see him frequently on these clips, and even against the high major opponent, splitting traps, splitting double teams, getting into the lane with frequency and finishing. Um, that's also probably worth mentioning. He averaged... Um, Almost five, it was 4.8 and change free throw attempts per game, which is pretty good. Some of these numbers get better against high major opposition, which is interesting. So here's the schedule they played. They played two games against UMass, and then they played Syracuse, Georgia, West Virginia, and Carolina. So that's three games against NCAA tournament teams 
and six games against high majors or high major pluses, which is what I, how I characterize him at UMass. He averaged in those six games 18.7 points per game, so essentially right on his seasonal average. It didn't dip. Mm. He was 33 for 65 from the floor, 50.7%, or about 6% better than his seasonal average. 12 for 24 from three in those games, 50%, about 15% better than his overall average. (laughs) 34 for 39 at the line. So not only was his free throw shooting 87%, about 10% higher than his seasonal average, but he got to the line 6.5 attempts per game. Again, about two, maybe a little less than two, between 1.5 and two more attempts per game at the line than he had in the regular season. The numbers that were not quite as good, assists, he averaged four per game. Turnovers, he averaged three and a half per game, which was a little worse than his regular season total. And then 11 steals, just shy of two per game. So what I take from that is this is a guy who got a fair amount of time against high major or near high major opposition this year, and he delivered. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a really encouraging sign because very often, you know, when you've got guys who are putting up big seasons at the mid-major level, they're not necessarily even getting many cracks against high-major opponents. You know, in a, I, I looked at it the year before where there was a full season for Northeastern as a freshman. He played, he played one game against UMass. That was it in terms of a near high-major or a high-major opponent. They didn't play anybody else. They kind of got a break in that because of COVID, it maybe changed some things and opened some possibilities up for them scheduling-wise, and they got all these games. That's not a normal season mm-hmm. for them. And so that's really encouraging if you're if you're looking at the fundamental question being, well, if Tyson Walker does end up at MSU as we expect now, how is he going to translate? That's an encouraging sign in addition to whatever you see on the clips. Um, what I like about him, besides the things I've mentioned, I said he gets into the lane a lot. Uh, he also seems to be able to finish, uh, at least from what I saw. Now, again, highlight clips you're typically only seeing makes. So I'm not sure. I, I don't have the synergy numbers to see what his shooting percentage was at the rim, but I will tell you that based on what I saw, I suspect this guy can be pretty effective. Mm-hmm. Getting to the basket, creating, creating distortion in defenses, you know. And he's also just in the Carolina game for sure. He displayed a pretty good ability to drive and kick. Like he would penetrate, create a distortion in the defense, and then be able to find a shooter with ease. He looks like he's got good vision. I mean, he's just the difference between him and what Michigan State had on the floor at the position this year. Apart from all the stats, it's just this guy is actually a point guard. Uh-huh. His vision, his court sense, it's obvious. You know what you're seeing. Um, I think he made some interesting use on a couple of occasions in the Carolina game of fakes, head and shot fakes, to create opportunities. You don't see that all the time. Michigan State didn't have anybody who did that very well this year. No. So there's a lot here to like. I, I, but again, returning to what I said a few minutes ago, I think for me, what answer, the, the, the question becomes as much as what can the guy do? What, what can the guy who's coming in do? It's 
what does Tom Izzo see as his need? And to me, I think, you know, Jaden Akins is a guy I really like. You know, they're incoming freshmen. I really like his game. And I think he's going to be a great player in time. If you were saying that you were expecting to hand him a 25 to 30 minute a roll or a night roll as a freshman, I'd be a little worried about that. Just because I think like anybody else, he's, he's not, he's not a guy I would expect to be instantly dominant at that level. I think there is going to be a bit of a learning curve. On the other hand, I'm going to be very surprised if he's not a guy capable of playing, you know, at least 15, 18 minutes a night and doing well. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you need the Cassius Winston type of presence for this team next year. Cause I think Jaden Akins can carry a little bit of a load. Yeah. And if you're saying, well, we need this guy to play 25 minutes a night. Okay. I feel a little better about that. And he's, almost certainly not going to be asked to score as much as he did at Northeastern. Um, you know, that might, as we saw with Mike Smith this year, Mike Smith had some similar, roughly similar issues in the assist to turnover ratio department at Columbia. And you saw him improve those dramatically. Mm. He went from like a 1.5 to one guy to a 2.5 to one this year, which is a huge leap especially when you consider you've gone way up in level of competition. There's no guarantee that Tyson Walker can do that, but I do think his role, like Mike Smith's was at Michigan this year, is going to be very different, what he's asked to do on a Michigan State team as opposed to what he was asked to do at Northeastern. And that might produce some positive developments in in certain areas. You know? Um, so I, I like the addition overall. You know, the... The other name that has surfaced that, that got some interest, and some of our listeners may be aware of this, is Marcus Carr from Minnesota. And Marcus Carr is an entirely different story. Marcus Carr would be a Cassius Winston-type presence. That's a guy who, if he joins your team, he's playing 30 minutes plus, right? Yeah. All Big Ten-level player. He's proven himself. Supposedly, this came out maybe two or three days ago from um, somebody on – a uh, an insider uh, site runner on a Kentucky site. I saw this was referenced. Somebody was asking, a Kentucky fan was asking about the likelihood they'd get Marcus Carr. And he said what he had heard was that it was either the NBA, which he's announced his intention to go through the draft process, um, or Michigan State. Now, I don't, particularly if Michigan State gets Tyson Walker, I don't believe that. And I never really believed they would be able to get Marcus Carr because he's going to go through the draft process. And probably this year, that means you're not getting a decision, or at least that there has to be a decision, until I'm going to guess the end of June, because the schedule is running about a month behind what's normal. Mm -hmm. And... You know, there's, there, it usually that, that cutoff point is in late May. So I would expect it would be late June. And he stated flat out, look, college is a backup plan. Yeah. Um, so is Michigan State going to wait till the end of June if they really believe they need a point guard problem solved? <laughs> well, yeah, that's a risky I think problem. We're have our answer. I think we're going to have our answer tomorrow. And look, Marcus Carr is a dynamite player. Mm-hmm. I would, at least on the offensive end, I would have absolutely zero questions 
about how good he is. He would immediately become um, probably would be Michigan State's best player, depending upon how the roster finally shakes out. Um, he would change things offensively dramatically. Um, but I just don't think you can, I don't think you can wait. And look, we were both pretty convinced, right? That they needed to address that position. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think they probably have with Tyson Walker and I think they can feel good about it. Now I I can see it now. There are going to be more names. If you're paying attention to this, guys are coming on the transfer market, entering the portal every single day. And there are going to be more names that come down the pike. And I can easily see there will probably be a name or two where fans will be like, Oh, why didn't we wait? Well, I, I, I think, I think if you're convinced that there's a guy there who wants to come to your school who can help you, you've got to take him, right? Yeah. And it's and, a clear situation where he's kind of maxed out his potential in this league. And it makes a lot of sense yes. yeah, for him yes. to move up leagues rather than someone who may be discontented um, for whatever reason somewhere else. Well, you got a point there, right? What's the motivation and, and how is that going to, you know, how is that going to impact the mindset of a player? Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, you, you may be right that maybe you're better off there as opposed to somebody who was unhappy at another high major and you're, you're buying somebody else's problem essentially. Right. Yeah. Um, that might be the case, but I, I think for me, what it comes down to is if Michigan state is convinced that this is the guy who can help them and who can play within their system, um, play within the program and give them what they need in totality, which I, I think they're convinced of it. And I can see why then you take him and you don't worry about who else might become available, mm. you know, because again, I don't think Tyson Walker needs to come in and be the savior, but, but the thing is after the season we just watched and that we're going to talk about, just a guy who could be a steady point guard would be kind of a savior yeah. because that's what this team lacked. And you see how much that handicaps you. We're not used to it at Michigan State because, man, we've, we've had, if you think about it, there have not been many years where Michigan State has not had at least solid point guard play. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there, there just really haven't been. And, and we didn't have it this year, and you see what can happen. Yeah. Uh, so if we look at Tyson Walker, um, now if we assume that Henry is leaving for the pros and that this is Josh Langford's final year. Right. Um, and then Hoiberg uh, has entered the right. transfer portal. Um, we still would need one more scholarship Correct. spot with the three coming in. Correct. So what – what well, do you think there? <laughs> I mean, that's, there's a, that's lot. a touchy issue, you know. It but. is because, look, I think one thing that's been made abundantly clear, and, and I've heard this from people who would know as well, is that this group of kids, this was far from a perfect basketball team, as we know, but it was a really good group of kids. There were no malcontents. There was, there was nobody who was an attitude, no problem, none, none of that. And so, I, in fact, they just had a tremendous year academically. I don't know if every listener saw that, but they had 10 guys, I think, 
on the all academic Big Ten team. Jeez. That's counting the walk-ons, but that's that's ten out of fifteen guys on the team counting the walk-ons were um, were all were all academic Big Ten members. Um, and and some guys, I mean, Julius Marble is an electrical engineering major. So <laughs> really, we're yeah. Wow. So we're talking about and and some of these guys. I mean, lawyer I know is an outstanding student. Kithier is an outstanding student. Um, they've got they got a lot of guys who, you know, are, are would qualify under any standard mm. as very very good students. And that's not unusual for Michigan State. But I, I'm just I'm just saying this group didn't have anybody that you look at and think, man, that's a guy who's just kind of a cancer. You yeah. know, they weren't good enough in the ways they needed to be good enough for this program standards from a basketball perspective. But my understanding is as people, as students, as citizens, they're everything you want. So you don't want to be, at least I don't want to be seen as, you know, well, don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm going to feel for whomever does not come back. But we knew this was coming. We've talked about it, you know, on this podcast, that a shakeup was inevitable because this team had too many holes in areas that Tom Izzo, you know, it has to be grinding him. And we've just been talking about one, the point guard spot. Mm-hmm. I happen to think they still need to add somebody who can operate in the low post somehow. And, you know, I don't know who that's going to be, if it's going to be somebody, but I, I think, I don't think this, it's going to be just one guy. Mm-hmm. So there are some guys that the rumor mill is working overtime. There are a couple of guys that I've heard it's possible they may just not, they may not be looking to transfer elsewhere. They may not be playing basketball next year. And that's Thomas Kithier and Foster Lawyer. Um, now, in Lawyer's case, it's in part the shoulder injury, which might indicate that it's more serious than has been let on. Mm-hmm. But I heard the rumor. I, this is a fact. I know both he and Kithier, I'm pretty sure, are scheduled to graduate this summer. I have heard that it is possible that Foster Lawyer might be looking at moving into a grad assistant role at Michigan State. And if you watched him after he got hurt, he was coaching. I saw Jim Comperoni mention this, and I totally agree. I've never seen a player at Michigan State actively coaching more mm-hmm. than Foster Lawyer did after he got hurt. I mean, you could easily see it. You know, his father comes from that background. His father's been a, a coach and a scout in the NBA and in, at the college level too, but particularly in the NBA. Mm-hmm. So he comes from that background. You know, so that, that might be where that goes. Um, Kithier, I have heard might, uh, simply not be wanting to play basketball anymore, which again would not mean that he'd be transferring out to go to another program. It just means he might not play basketball anymore. Mm-hmm. That, that's happened once to, no, twice to Michigan State in the Izzo era. There was a guy early in his tenure came in the, the class with Mateen, uh, named Ken Miller, who was a big man. Uh, who just stopped playing basketball uh, after I think it was one year. Uh, and then Alex Ghana more recently. Yeah. yeah. He's a guy who just retired from the sport rather than continue. Uh, so it's happened a couple times. That, again, that's just rumor. Don't know the likelihood of it. 
there are a lot of rumors about Rocket Watts leaving, and I would give those some credence. It would make sense. Um, you know, people may remember that Rocket committed to Michigan State, and then there was a long delay until he actually signed, if you remember that. He committed in the fall, so before the early signing period, mm-hmm. didn't sign in November. I thought at the time, I remember saying on this podcast, I don't think he's going to end up in Michigan State. When that happens, that's usually a bad sign. Mm. Well, prove me wrong. He did end up signing in the spring. But but my understanding is that happened against the wishes of some people that were close to him that didn't really want him to go to Michigan State. They didn't feel it was the right fit, you know, whatever. There could be all kinds of motivations behind that, some nefarious, some not. Mm -hmm. Uh it's not hard to imagine that after the season that just finished, he would have people in his ear saying again that this is not the right fit for him. And the difference this time is there's ammunition for it. Yeah. yeah. It didn't work. Whatever the reasons were. And, you know, I, I mentioned this on the Spartan Mag port the other day. I may have mentioned it here. I don't know. Um, I racked my brain trying to think of anybody in the Judd Heathcote or Tom Izzo tenures, both, who came in with the reputation that Rocket did, then had a freshman season at least as good as his, because there have been highly regarded guys that didn't pan out. There's been a few of those. Over It happens in any program. But those guys never really managed to do anything at any point. They just never was clear they were overrated. Mm. Rocket Watts was great defensively his entire freshman year. And then over the last 10 games or so of his freshman year was dynamite offensively. I mean, he was a, he was a guy we were talking about as a potential all big 10 player heading into the season. We weren't alone. That's how most people thought of him. And it went so badly. I've never seen that. I couldn't compare it to anyone I've ever seen at Michigan state to have that kind of dynamic in play. And the why, I mean, it's easy to say, well, it's the point guard thing. I'm sure that was part of it, but that, that doesn't explain everything to me. It doesn't explain why his defense went in the toilet for about a third of the season. It doesn't explain why when he was moved off the ball, it didn't straighten out. Yeah. It doesn't explain the shot. I mean, it just doesn't explain it all to my satisfaction. And there may not be an explanation, you know. There are weird things that happen in, in sports. And it may be that we look back on Rocket Watts' career whenever it's over and we say there was that one weird year at Michigan State where just everything fell off a cliff for him. So I understand why there might be a sentiment from people close to him and maybe even from him to some degree to want to start fresh. Somewhere else. I get that. And, and clearly he's not going to be in the same role at Michigan State. You know, you just, you can't do that to him or to the program again. And, and adding a Tyson Walker kind of makes that obvious, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so there's a lot of talk out there. I've heard Louisville mentioned as a possible, uh, landing spot. I know they recruited him hard originally. Um, it wouldn't be too far from home. You know, I, I could I could see that. Um, I'm sure there'll be a lot of interested people. I don't think Rocket will go mid-major. Let's put it that way. I think somebody at the high-major level, probably multiple somebodies, 
would be willing to take a chance on him. Mm. He's got immense potential. We know that. Um, I just don't know if it's working at Michigan State. And if it if it doesn't, man, that's a kid. Again, he committed to Michigan State bad because he badly wanted to be at Michigan State. Mm. So a kid like that, even after the season, he said, "How can you not wish him anything but the best if he moves on?" You know, I mean, I I don't think I, he never did anything to embarrass the program. He just he didn't have a very good year on the court. Yeah, that's true. not a. It's unfortunate, but it's not a sin. If he goes elsewhere, Godspeed. I hope he kills it. You know, and then the other name I've heard, and this is not complete because theoretically it could be anybody. I don't think there's anyone on this roster you can say, oh, that guy would never leave. You know, I really don't. But the other name I've heard is Malik Hall. That would be the one out of all the names I've heard that you'd look at from a basketball point of view and say, yeah, that that would be a hit. Because I think Malik Hall has a lot of untapped potential, and I think he closed the season very well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he did. Um, you know, he was the only guy who showed up at that Big Ten tournament game against Maryland. He played reasonably well, I thought, against UCLA, and he was really good down the stretch in the Big Ten in the regular season. So you'd hate to lose him. You know, he and Julius Marble have familial situations. We talked about Julius Marble some. You know, his father died this season. He's from Texas. So, you know, you could maybe understand something there in the dynamic. Uh, Malik Hall has a father with Alzheimer's, with severe Alzheimer's. And there's some thought that maybe getting a little closer to home might be, um, might be something there in the mix, but I, I don't know. So, you know, depending upon what happens, that could change Michigan State's thoughts in terms of the transfer market. You know, we just don't know. I mean, if, if Gabe Brown were to leave, well, all of a sudden, boy, even with those incoming freshmen, you better add another wing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, right now, I don't think it's, you know, we talked about Al Durham from Indiana. Had it, it, apparently, you know, there was some level of interest there, but I don't think you need to add Al Durham now, but if somebody left, maybe you would. So, you know, Malik Hall, if Malik Hall leaves, well, are you all of a sudden in the market for a four-man? Mm-hmm. Maybe. And that's you know? that's all to preface uh, the idea that maybe Amani Bates reclassifies. And then that, well, there's that there's too. That. Now, Amani Bates, I think, you know, I saw enough of him this year to now be pretty convinced. Despite his height, I don't think you want to think about using Amani as a small ball four. Mm. I think he really needs to be a wing. Um, and so. If he comes on board right, that's going to change the dynamic. Now, you know, again, I mentioned three guys off the top. If two of those guys were to stop playing basketball and another guy transfers, well, Michigan State's got room for Walker, they got room for Amani, and they've had room for another transfer. Mm-hmm. You know, if they were to if they were to go that route, and and look, we just this has been if if you weren't adequately prepared how wild this offseason was going to be. <laughs> Strap in on the transfer front, on the coaching front. I mean, it's been wild. So there's no telling what ultimately this is going to look like at Michigan State. Um, I don't think we're going to see 
you know, five, six guys leaving. I just, I would be very, very surprised by that. But we're going to see some. And if Walker commits tomorrow as we expect, um, then there's definitely somebody mm. who's going. So speaking of the coaching market, um, any, uh, I've been hearing some people bringing up Dane Fife's name in the Indiana, uh, yeah. sweepstakes. Look, I, I don't think you can rule anything out at this point. Here, here's the Indiana story, which has absolutely floored me today. So the initial bit, well, you know, they pay $10 million to get Archie Miller to go. Yeah. All right. So when that happens, what is your, I'll, I'll just ask you the question. If you see a school pay a coach $10 million to leave, what is your assumption about what that means? <laughs> that they're going to pay somebody a lot of money. That, and that, and that they probably got somebody in mind, right? Yeah, yeah. You don't just do that and say, well, okay, now we're going to really start thinking about this. Okay. So the first story was that they approached Brad Stevens. Now, I guess I understand if you're Indiana, or frankly, if you're any job on that level, you're a top 10, top 15 job nationally, you would probably through put a feeler out to see if there was any interest. I don't fault anybody for doing that, and because mm-hmm. he's an Indiana guy and all that. <clears throat> Fine, put a feeler out. But if that was your plan A, which now seems to be the case that it was, then you're out of your minds. Then you don't. I have no connection to Indiana. I have no connection to big time college coaching, and I could tell you that was a fool's errand. Mm. There was no way that was going to happen. Now I've, I've read these stories about, oh no, no, they were they, they got they got indications from him that he was interested, and they're full of shit. I listened to an Indiana podcast um, called Hoosier Hysterics yesterday. And it's really funny oh, now. That's got that's got to be interesting. In a moment, um, where you know they they were of the opinion that this was a sane thing to do, that there were actually reasons to think that it was real at a certain point. I don't know how anybody could believe that because I've heard through people that would know. At the very reason he left Butler, keep in mind, he left Butler after he went to back-to-back final fours. He had, if he had stayed there, we would probably be talking about Butler as the Midwest Gonzaga mm-hmm. by now. He would have been able to recruit. They moved to the Big East subsequently, so he would have had that kind of affiliation. He would have continued to kill it in recruiting. He left the college game because he didn't like recruiting. He didn't like the um, the alumni stuff. He just wanted to coach basketball. Now, if you believe that about a guy, why in God's name would he step willingly into one of the biggest pressure cookers there is in the college game? In fact, I heard Jeff Goodman the other day talking about how the reason Archie Miller was a bad fit at Indiana is that all he wanted to do was coach basketball, which is something I've heard about John Beeline. That's why I don't think John Beeline makes sense for Indiana either that Archie Miller really struggled with the other things that come along with being the head coach at Indiana. Well, I think a lot of that would apply to Brad Stevens, too. You know, Brad Stevens wants to coach basketball. I don't Mm. think he wants to be 
a public figure. He doesn't want to be what Tom Izzo is. Yeah. Tom Izzo embraces that stuff, you know. He's a guy who could succeed at a place like Indiana. Mm-hmm. But they're not all like that. And, and so that was crazy to me. The fact that, if okay, that's your plan A. All right, you're shooting for the moon. Fine. But you better have a really good plan B, right? Because the, the odds of plan A working out are slim, if you're being honest. It came out today that apparently their plan B was they approached Chris Holtman. <laughs> now I'm, and, and this is the part of that podcast that I thought was hilarious in retrospect because they were talking about how the AD there, Scott Dolson, he's a Bob Knight guy. He was, I think he was a manager under Knight. Um, so he's a deep Indiana guy, understands the program. And they were like, look, we've got complete faith in this guy. He's not going to screw this up. He's going to make the, he's going to make a great hire. It's not going to be Brad Stevens, but it doesn't matter. He knows what he's doing. And then it comes out that Chris Holtman was your next guy. Think about that. Chris Holtman is the head coach at Ohio State. Now, I've been a little <laughs> bit critical on this podcast of Chris Holtman because I feel like that job puts you in a position where it's reasonable to expect a little more than they've gotten from him thus far. Mm. But he hasn't done a bad job. He's not going to get fired. Mm. You know, and and it's a great job. He's at a premier Big Ten school. He's got all the resources he could ever ask for. He sits in great recruiting territory already. Yeah. Indiana doesn't really improve things for him in that regard relative to his current job. Um, why would he ever in a million years entertain that? Oh, and by the way, you passed him up. He was in the state of Indiana and was at Butler and – IU had their job open up, and they hired Archie Miller rather than Chris Holtman last time. Mm-hmm. So why is he going to take your job? <laughs> He's not. That's the answer. And the fact that that came out, that solidified it for me. When when this is your plan, you didn't have a plan. <laughs> right. you $10 million at Archie Miller to go away, and you didn't have a clue as to what you were going to do next to actually get somebody in to coach the team. So God knows where they're at. It's it's amazing to me. We talk And now the, the Texas with Shaka Smart leaving, you would assume Texas is going to go after Chris Beard. Chris Beard. Which exactly. is probably their third option or maybe their first option or second option maybe. What should he have been? That's really the question. But now, hey, you're right. I mean, I would kind of be surprised to see Chris Beard go to Indiana. I would think either he takes that Texas job or he stays put. Mm-hmm. That That's kind of what would seem to make sense um, for him. Apparently, according to what I've read, they have not approached Scott Drew at Baylor, which is mind-blowing. And look, Scott Drew, there's some reasons to worry about him in recruiting in a recruiting sense. You know, I, I've heard enough stuff that I would think he'd be a bit of a risk. A little bit, at least. Um, maybe that's why they haven't. But man, on the surface, he's an Indiana guy making the jump from Baylor. That's one you can sell. And unlike yeah. Chris Beard, Scott Scott Drew is not in the top three in terms of his salary right now. So you could do that realistically. You could you could out Indiana. Indiana can't go in and just blow every high major program out of the water. We talked about that relative to NATO, right? 
I just don't think, I don't think that's a, a likely move for somebody to come in and just blow Alabama away with money. Baylor, Indiana could blow away financially. They could, but they haven't reached out to him apparently. So now you're talking about, is it going to be Mike Woodson, who they've mentioned, you know, XIU guy, long-term NBA coach, assistant coach, and a couple of, he was actually an assistant. Did we talk about this the other day? Uh, I don't know if we talked about Woodson or not. Mike Woodson was an Indiana great in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, He was from the Magic era. Mm. Um, And uh, great player, great player, one of the best small forwards of that era um, had a decent NBA career and then has been a long-term NBA assistant. He was an assistant under the, on the uh, going to work Pistons that won yeah. the title in 2004 under Larry Brown. He, he seems like he's assistants. been on just about every NBA team at one point. Been a lot of and he's coached, he coached the Knicks and he coached the Hawks as a head coach. I think not mm. very successfully in either stop, but you know, NBA that that's, that's not under your control always as a coach. Yeah. You know, what roster you've got. Um, but it just seems like a force. I mean, I don't see Mike Woodson as being a Juwan Howard on the recruiting trail. I, I just don't see that. Um, Dane Fife's mention, name gets mentioned, but look, I think that would be in a, a very, very, very tough sell to the IU fan base. No offense to Dane. But I just don't – if that's what they end up with after you paid Archie Miller $10 million to go away, I don't see how you can sell that as as the move that Indiana needed to make. You know, and I think he's pretty highly thought of there, and rightly so. He was a great player for them. He's – God, he's, he's done everything you could do as an assistant coach, and he had, he's already had a head coaching tenure. Mm. Under his, uh, but I, I just – B-U-I? Yeah. I just don't see it, though, for Indiana. I mean, that's not a job that an assistant from somewhere typically gets. That would um, follow the the pattern, though, of what we've been seeing, sort of in the uh, at both Penn State and Minnesota, kind of taking a flyer on on some of these longer term assistants. You're right, but there's a difference between Penn State, and Minnesota, and Indiana. Yeah, you're right yeah. about that. But this is where I think that would stop. Consequently, I don't know how anybody can feel confident about what happens there. Now, now here's an interesting thought. Um, there have been a lot of speculation linking Porter Moser to the Marquette job. Well, now that's gone because Shaka Smart took it. Does that put him in pole position for the Indiana job? Maybe. And if they got Porter Moser... I think that would be a reasonable um, conclusion for them. I don't think it would have people in, in Bloomington doing cartwheels, but I think you could look at it and say, all right, that's a credible hire. He's a, he's a weird, weird career, though, if you look at his career. Over the last, like, four or five years, he's been incredible. You know, he's... He's been a coach there as they moved from the horizon up to the Missouri Valley, and he hasn't missed a beat. Mm-hmm. They've been at the top of both those leagues. He's already had one Final Four appearance. Um, I think he's won or shared three straight regular season titles in his conferences. 
Um, they're still alive as we speak here tonight in the Sweet 16 of this year's tournament. What's funny is his first six years at Loyola were rough. He wasn't even close to getting it done, and he was still on the horizon. He was at a lower level than he is now. Um, to For any place to have the patience to let a guy go to year seven, <laughs> yeah. remarkable, right? It really is. And like and, anything, and really. <laughs> they did it, and they've been rewarded because now they're going through the best sustained period for Loyola basketball since the late 50s, early 60s. Um, yeah, something that nobody saw coming. I have heard, read somewhere, somebody was talking about how Porter Moser's frustration at Loyola has been. Um, even in the Missouri Valley, he's still in a league where maybe in a, because Missouri Valley's lost a little juice over the last few years as they lost programs like Wichita State and Creighton to other leagues. Mm. So not quite what they were, say, five, six, seven years ago. Still a good league, but not quite as juicy. It's going to be a rare year that the Missouri Valley would get more than, say, two teams in the tournament. You know, maybe the odd year you'd get three. But it's tough. And Moser apparently has been very frustrated with the fact that even though he wants to try to schedule in the non-conference to make his team a viable at-large candidate, even if they don't win the postseason tournament in the Missouri Valley, um, he's finding that he can't do it. Teams won't play him. Yeah, that makes sense. And so when a guy is that frustrated by something like that, it seems obvious to me that they're going to move up sooner or later where they don't have to worry about that. Mm. And, man, if not now, when for him? Because he, he had the Final Four run, and now he's turned the trick again, at least to a Sweet 16 beat a number one seed. He's done everything you could do. If he's going to move, it's got to be now. Mm -hmm. So maybe he's the guy at Indiana, but man, it looks like, and I'm still here saying that to me, out of all these guys, the smartest name they could have gone for if he's healthy and if he wanted it, if he had the fire in the belly, would have been Thad Matta. And there were rumors about him. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. They were shot down. There was a rumor that he had accepted the job and then he failed a physical. Well, that turned out to be completely untrue. <laughs> um, make that up. That's ridiculous. I, that got out there. There was an Indiana site that reported that. Maybe and then it was shot down. Um, I'm surprised so he hasn't, he hasn't coached. He hasn't yet found a job yet. I mean, I'm sure he's had offers, but. Well, it, look, I think the, the fundamental thing with Thad Matta is a simple, simple, simple question that he'd have to answer. Is he healthy enough to do it? Yeah. You know, for people who don't know, a big part of Thad Matta's decline, such as it was, it wasn't that big a decline, honestly, at Ohio State was due to his health. He had, I think it was as long ago as 2007, he had back surgery that was botched. And it left him with a gradually deteriorating physical condition so that do you, you do you remember how at the end of his tenure at Ohio State he was kind of, he would be positioned weirdly, sitting weirdly on the bench. It was obvious mm. that he was in extreme physical discomfort. I knew the jig was up. If you remember, he retired, I think, in June or July after his last season there. It was very late. And 
I remember going to the EYBL event in Indianapolis at the end of April that year. And if you know anything about that, that one typically is a live period for recruiting. So every head coach you can think of is at that. You see them all. Thad Mata was not there. His assistants were. I saw Greg Paulus and I saw, um, oh, who else was it? I don't think it was Jeff Bowles because I think Jeff Bowles had gone to Ohio. But I definitely saw Greg Paulus there, the guy who used to play for Duke. Mm-hmm. And he was an assistant at the end of Mata's regime. Um, but no Thad Mata. And then I read about it and confirmed, yeah, he was not there. I knew something. I knew there was trouble. And sure enough, he ended up, you know, retiring, which was apparently kind of compelled. Ohio State was kind of, you know, you're fired, I quit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If he could answer that he's healthier and he can, and he has the fire in the belly to go out and do the job, he is. And he's only 53 years old. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. This is a guy who should be in the prime of Jesus. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he should have a good 15 great years in front of him. But in fairness to Indiana or anybody else, if he's not healthy, then you can't do that because it, it definitely took away. It took away a little bit from his recruiting and it took away a lot, I think, from quality control. Mm-hmm. In that program, that program was so well run for most of his tenure there. You know, I mean, you think about all those Michigan State, Ohio State battles. Man, that was when I think about Tom Izzo's tenure at Michigan State. The two programs that are going to be at the top of the list for the ultimate foils within the conference for Michigan State were Thad Mata's Ohio State teams and Bo Ryan's Wisconsin teams. Those mm-hmm. are the two. Right, I would think that would be the case for everybody. Beeline obviously made Michigan better there, you know, toward the end, but it doesn't. I don't think it compares to those other two guys, honestly. Mm-hmm. And and that guy was so good for so long, and then it just fell off when I think the the health got to be too much. But you know, again, in fairness to Indiana, maybe they've checked and he's not ready for it, or they don't believe that he's ready for it. But. Man, I'd be kicking the tires on that one for sure. So, but who knows? Who knows where we're going to end up in in the coaching carousel? There's just, you know, there's more job. There were rumors today um, that, and I'm trying to think, rumors about South Carolina and Frank Martin getting fired, and then rumors about Cincinnati, which then were followed up by an announcement that Cincinnati is launching an internal investigation related to player complaints of player mistreatment. They've had like five or six guys under the portal. Oh, wow. And, and the thing is, the guy who's coaching there, John Brandon, is only in his second year. They had a terrible year on the court this year. But last year, his first year, they won the American. Mm-hmm. And he was very successful before that at Northern Kentucky. So these are – we talked about Oklahoma – you know, we talk about maybe the possibility that Maryland ends up opening up. Texas is now open. I mean, there are a lot of interesting – IU, obviously, clearly. There are a lot of interesting jobs. This is a, not just a wild transfer season. It's a wild coaching season. And, and then one more note on this, and then we can turn to Michigan State. Um I think the one thing about the transfer market that I didn't appreciate fully until we've gotten into it is 
if you think about how things went in the past, when a guy switched jobs, a head coach, mm. and left school, typically you would not see – sometimes you'd see an exodus of players, but it usually wouldn't be a mass exodus because for anybody except grad transfers, they'd have to sit out a year. Mm-hmm. Right, So that was a pretty powerful disincentive to transfer. At least stick it out and see how the new guy is. Right. Well, now that's gone. So when you look at these jobs, you know, Indiana got Christian Lander entered the transfer, the, the transfer portal today. Oh. Um, they had a uh, Geronimo enter the transfer the other day. I think they've got five or six guys. Penn State had a bunch and they got one back today, Isaiah Brockington, but they've still got a few guys in the portal currently. Um, Indiana's had a ton. I think that's something I didn't fully appreciate that, oh, when a school loses a head coach, guys are going to hit the portal en masse mm-hmm. because they can. And they don't have to see how it works out with the new guy. They can decide, I don't have a relationship with this guy. I don't trust this guy. I didn't like the way this guy shook my hand, whatever, and just go. You know, well, and that's like an entire an entire recruiting class that would be going maybe potentially to Texas Tech. All of a sudden, is the whole thing's going right to, or the whole team's transferring over to Texas? You know, or, you <laughs> could see you could start seeing that too. You could start seeing guys following a coach. Now, a coach has to balance all this stuff, so it's not quite as simple as all that. But but honestly, it really is the wild wild west at this point. We just I was thinking about this today. In years past, we would be gearing up, like not that long ago, five years ago, when we started this podcast, we could realistically do a Big Ten teaser preview for the next season mm-hmm. in early May. Because at that point, that's when the NBA, the NBA draft, um, you know, withdrawal was earlier. And so you'd have those decisions would be in. And recruiting would be done and coaches shifting around would be over. We are so far from that. <laughs> we, can't, we can't have any clue what Big Ten rosters are going to look like next year. Mm. None. Even a program as stable as Michigan State's, we're talking about this, right? Yeah, yeah. And if it's happening at Michigan State, it's happening everywhere. So uh, Michigan State – they finished the season 15 and 13, uh, losing record in the Big Ten. What, uh, nine and 11 was it? First time ever. Yeah. Time is, yes. And 67th in Ken Palm, 98th on offense, 45th on defense. Uh, and that's the worst of his tenure in Ken Palm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it adds up with what the test told you right mm. and we know that this was a team that scraped into the field I mean they were in the play-in game as an 11th seed that also tells you they they got in basically as a result of the way they closed um, but it was it was very tight and and I think when when I look back on it I would say that's the one thing that you can say unequivocally was a was an accomplishment is that a team that faced as much adversity as they did and frankly played the way they did for much of the season still managed to keep that tournament streak alive. They mm-hmm. found a way. 
So I give them credit for that, the players and the coaches. And, you know, it started off November 25th, Eastern Michigan. Foster Lawyer comes out and scores 20. Uh, we think maybe we found something here at point guard. They go on to Notre Dame, um, have a great game defensively. They win by 10 there. Then they go down to Duke, um, beat them fairly handily. Um, and Detroit, Western, and Oakland were a little bit closer probably than you, you would have liked. But I think heading into the Big Ten season, you felt you had to feel pretty good about where Michigan State was at. I mean, well, I don't know. <laughs> um, I think the Notre Dame and Duke games were very encouraging. You mentioned the way they played defense, and particularly on the perimeter against Notre Dame, is Notre Dame was a team that had some shooters. They had some guards that you had legitimate reason to worry about. And you mentioned it was what it ended up a 10 point margin at the end. That game was really a 20 point plus game for much of the way. Mm -hmm. Michigan State let them back in a little bit. They let them go on a Ken Palm run at the end. Michigan State won that one more decisively than the final score indicated. And and that was also actually the case against Duke, too. Yeah. yeah. That was the one where you thought, remember, Duke had only played one game prior to that. So we didn't know that Duke was going to be what they were this season. And to go into Cameron and just run them the way Michigan State did, Rocket Watts playing extremely well, Joey Hauser was playing well at that point, um, yeah, you felt reasonably optimistic. And I think Michigan State after that game was as high as number four nationally. After yeah, the Duke. I think so. Um, so there was a lot of reason to feel good about it. I think those games you mentioned, though, those in-state games against mid-majors were in retrospect. And, and it wasn't even that I, I was concerned about what it said at the time, but in retrospect, you can definitely say – that's where it started to become apparent mm-hmm. that there were issues. The fact that they were they were competitive games against those three teams. When those are games that normally you expect Michigan State to win by relatively healthy margins. Not all of them. There have been lots of years Michigan State, you know, had to go to overtime to beat Oakland or, you know, something like that. That happens. But not all three. Yeah. And and there were consistent problems in those games. They had consistent problems in holding opponent guards down. Rocket Watts was really struggling defensively at the time. Um, And the perimeter as a whole, which was something I thought was going to be a massive strength of this team, was its perimeter defense. It was a problem against those teams. And it was the first point, because they they were struggling in all three of those games, it was the first point that I think you could say, all right, there's a lot that needs to be improved here. Mm-hmm. But in general, though, you're right. I, I'm just speaking for myself. I was not overly – I did not think because of that, oh, wow, we're nowhere close to a Big Ten title contender. I still thought, okay, there are problems. There are things that need to get worked out. But I, I firmly believe this was a team that was going to be in the mix. Mm-hmm. And then – they started Big Ten play the way they did against Northwestern, which was followed by Minnesota, and on and on we yep. went. We Wisconsin, Wisconsin. followed by Wisconsin, and then the blowout to Minnesota. So two blowout losses on the road, and then a, a tough home court loss to Wisconsin. And right around there, that Wisconsin or Minnesota 
blowout losses around where Rocket Watts was like, I, I need to come off the point. Right. And so then they get Nebraska and Rutgers um, wins there, and then they go into um, Purdue and 55-54 to 54 lose that thing right at the end. And that was the last game before their COVID break. Yeah, and, and that was the one that really, I think, just plunged everybody mm-hmm. into uh, a world of depression around this because they were hammering Purdue in that game, absolutely yeah. hammering. And they played such a miserable close to that game, let them back in it, and ended up losing it. If you remember, they lost it on a, a Trevion Williams short jumper from like, I don't know, eight feet. But Purdue only got the ball for that possession because Michigan State couldn't grab a defensive rebound off a missed free throw. Mm. Shades of foreshadowing of what would come to haunt them in the tournament against UCLA. But um, that was really, to me, a microcosm of the season in that plays that you expect Michigan State teams to make, they did not make. Simple play. And it wasn't the only problem by a stretch. But when you've got a missed free throw, that's just, that's, that's a play you have to execute, getting a defensive rebound off a missed free throw. And there's no good excuse for not doing it. Mm-hmm. But Michigan State could not do it. And they, they couldn't execute plays that normal, and I'm not talking about Final Four Michigan State teams. I mean, just normal, you know, a, a down year where you finish fourth in the league and you, you win a game in the tournament, then you lose in the second round. Talk about that kind of Michigan State team makes those plays. This one couldn't. And Purdue was really where, because if you think about it, they win that Purdue game, they're three and three in the league. Mm-hmm. Instead, they're two and four. Then the COVID layoff hits for about three weeks, as you say, and then you get back into it and boy, you immediately fall into an even deeper spiral. Yeah. They come right out against Rutgers and lose to thirty, lose by thirty to Rutgers, and that was a horrible game. Absolutely nobody played well. Thirty-seven points uh, is all yeah, they scored. In that it game. was the low, and you could understand it to a degree because of all the time off that they couldn't practice together. Mm-hmm. Um, and Michigan State did not do what say Michigan did later in the year, where they said, "No, we're just not going to play some games until we have like six days of practice." Yeah. In retrospect, maybe you do that, but uh, they didn't, and they paid the price for it. That Rutgers game is probably the worst game I've ever seen a Tom Izzo team play. Yep. It's hard to think of a worse one. That was bad. Uh, And then they follow that up a couple days later against Ohio State um, in a loss. And then Iowa, which was a little bit closer. Um, They only wound up losing that one by six. chance to win. Yeah. Yeah. That was a game they had a chance to win. I thought they played very well. It was in Iowa City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you get Nebraska and Penn State where they uh, finally kind of rebound a little bit. They only beat Penn State by two. Um, but, but they were, I mean, just to frame it, before those two games, they were two and seven in the league. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you know, really, and we talk, we talk this way, I was of the opinion that a tournament run you know, keeping that streak alive was probably beyond this team because what the COVID layoff did was not just, 
you know, interrupt their practice progress or all of those things. And it didn't just put them into games where they didn't have adequate preparation time, like against Rutgers and against Ohio State. But it also meant that you were going to be, to get all 20 games in, you were going to be compressing the schedule to a degree that you really never, ever had time to work on yourself. Mm-hmm. You only had enough time to do game prep for the next opponent, and that's it. And that is not a recipe for success historically at Michigan State. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, they win those two games, and they go to four and seven. Yep. And then comes Iowa. And unlike the first meeting on, against Iowa, they decided to play it differently with Garza. And we're double-teaming him a lot and, and leaving the shooters open, and it killed them. And they got beat by 30 in that one, 88 to 58. Yeah. I think Iowa went something like 15 for 30 from three. Yeah. I mean, it was crazy. And just a terrible strategic. It was the worst strategic approach I've ever seen from a Tom Izzo team. It made no sense. 52% from three in that game. <laughs> uh, and then, so then they get the rematch against Purdue, but uh, this is at West Lafayette, and they lose by 10. Uh, by this point, Purdue is really picking up steam and looking pretty good. Um, so you're four and nine. Yeah. And then um, Indiana is is really the game where it turned around. And it really turned around at halftime because uh, they were down, what, almost 10, 11 points yep. at halftime. Yep. Um, come storming back uh, with 27 points from Henry. Uh 14 from Langford, 14 from Gabe. And IU was considered a tournament team at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then the Illinois game, which was probably the pinnacle. I mean, that was uh, when we were coming into the Indiana game, we were saying, well, they're going to have to win it or into the Illinois game. They're going to have to win four of the next six in order to even think about making the tournament. Right. And sure enough, they get that Illinois game. And the next one at Ohio State, which is probably two of the biggest back-to-back wins you can have in the Big Ten <laughs> ever. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the way they play when you consider that they beat three teams in that stretch who were in the top five when they played them. Um, and Illinois and Michigan remained there till the end of the regular season. Um, that is remarkable. And again... Given that the circumstances for that happening did not appear to be present remotely. Like they just weren't going to have time to improve what they were as a team. So how are you possibly going to find it within yourself to beat those kind of teams? And yet they did it. And, and the way they did it, particularly in the Illinois and Ohio state games was by going back to the drawing board, specifically the old drawing board of Tom Izzo's program. This Michigan State team got physical. Mm-hmm. Physical in a way that I didn't think they had within them. Yeah. Uh, they battled the hell out of Coburn and Liddell back-to-back and really frustrated those guys and did enough with both of those opponents, particularly Illinois, also had great guard play. They did enough to contain those guys. Um, and then again, you, you talked about Aaron Henry against IU. Aaron Henry was the rock at this point. Mm-hmm. He was giving them interior offense. 
he was making plays for others and he was defending at a high level. If you remember that Ohio State game, at one point or another, it seemed like he guarded everybody. And down the stretch, they had him one-on-one against Liddell and he held his own. Yeah. And then some. Um, so yeah, I mean, those were, those were obviously the wins that put them back in it to get a tournament berth. Before that, they were seen as no hopers. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you win those two games consecutively and people have to look at you in a different light because of how big those wins were. Uh, and then they turn around on a, another quick turnaround, go to Maryland and get beat pretty bad against Maryland, 73 to 55. Just a tough, yeah. tough matchup. They've, Maryland's been for. Yeah. Maryland was, for whatever reason, was this Michigan State team's kryptonite. Um, I, th- I thought, you know, I mentioned earlier this, this podcast, the irony to me is if Mark Turgeon does end up leaving is that this was his best coaching job because he had a very flawed roster, but he somehow found a way to make them incredibly tough defensively and they found enough offense and, and pieces that could fit together in a way that made them hard to guard, especially for Michigan State. Michigan State just really couldn't ever, in two meetings with them, couldn't really ever figure out how to stay in front of their guards, to not foul them, and also to limit them from deep. They just, with that small ball lineup Maryland played, one of the reasons, obviously, is the way Maryland played, it made it hard for Michigan State to play Marcus Bainham heavy minutes. And Marcus Bainham emerged in this stretch we're talking about as finally Michigan State had a guy they could say was their best five. Mm-hmm. They went a lot of the season where it's like, well, they're all bad. Marcus Bingham became a pretty good player down the, down the stretch. But Maryland was the team he really couldn't impact the game much against because they went small. He's not at his best chasing a 6-7 guy around the line. And if that guy decides to drive him to the hole, he doesn't really have the wheels to stop that. So... That was part of the success. But then I thought Maryland was just very, very tough. They were hard to play against, which I've never said before about a uh, Mark Turgeon team, but they were. Yeah. Uh, and then they get Indiana at home uh, where they finally are – the bigs are really starting to come around at this point, um, sort of as a crew. Um, they had that yeah. one bigs-only practice. They hold uh, Trace Jackson Davis to nine points in this one yep. and, and get the win. Uh, and then they go to Michigan uh, and get beat fairly handily, sixty-nine to fifty. Um, what can you say about that? I mean, um, you know, that was a game where I think Michigan was playing for the outright Big Ten title, mm-hmm. and they looked like it. They looked like a team that that wanted wanted that, and they were playing. They played a very sharp game. Um, not a perfect game, but sharp enough. And Michigan State just wasn't very good. And it looked to me that Michigan State maybe was done in terms of fatigue. And and, and you got to remember, during this whole stretch we're talking about, Aaron Henry and Josh Langford, who were their two best players this year, um, were playing huge amounts of minutes. And I don't even mean that they were physically drained, but mentally you can, that can take a toll when so much is asked of you, Aaron in particular. I just thought that Michigan game, that first Michigan game, 
shots. It looked to me like a team that was fatigued, whether it was physical, mental, or both. They just it had all the earmarks of that. Shots were left short. There was an inattention to detail. They were just mm. they were a day late and a dollar short on every fifty-fifty ball. Right? They just looked like a team that didn't have it in them anymore. Yeah, just that, didn't have anything left to give, which you could have push, understood. That push against Indiana to win uh, two only two days before kind of was like right. the last gasp because well, they but and they knew that if they won that. They might still be able to get in the tournament, even if you lost both of them to Michigan, but particularly, right? you'd only have to at least win one. Uh, yeah, and in retrospect, you know, I don't know about that. I still think they would have if they would have been able to win a Big Ten tournament game. Yeah, but I think that's... But it played out, you know, they, they were definitely in a position where they needed one more win, at least, after Indiana. Um, we knew that, and it could be any of them. And they didn't get that first Michigan one, but then, you know, we roll into Breslin and it was a different story to end the regular season. Yeah, 70 to 64, they get that one. Um, which puts them up against Maryland in the Big Ten tournament, unfortunately. Well, I want to, I want to say something about that Michigan win first. Because yeah. That was really, um, that was, that was something that to me was, again, indicative of old time Michigan State basketball. No reason in the world to expect they had it in them after what we saw in Ann Arbor. And that was a quick turnaround. That was a, was that a Thursday, Sunday or a Friday? It was a Thursday, Sunday. So they, I guess they had a couple days in between. But again, not a lot of time. The only advantage is you really didn't need to do much scouting work because you just played them. Yeah. So they go into that game at Breslin and figured it out. I mean, just gutted it out. Old style Michigan State basketball. They played harder. They played with more physicality than Michigan did, and they did just enough to win and got a great game out of Rocket Watts. Mm. You know, the thing that you knew from the first game was the way Michigan plays defense. There's an opportunity there for a point guard to get stuff done off the pick and roll, to take that high, you know, just inside the line or just outside the line jumper off pick and rolls at the top of the key because of the way Michigan kind of shacks their the pick and roll with Dickinson and with Davis. They're not going to come out and hard hedge on you. So the opportunities were going to be there. But Rocket Watts was a guy who hadn't cashed in opportunities for most of the year. Mm-hmm. And in that game, he found himself. And, you know, if nothing else happens in his career at Michigan State, he's always going to have that because Rocket Watts was absolutely the key to a game beating Michigan. Mm-hmm. That's not nothing in yep. this pro that matters. And, you know, after that, you know, I, I felt really good about going into the Big Ten conference tournament and possibly NCAA. It looked like maybe Rocket had found something. Um, Hauser was starting to play a little better. Um, yeah. You know, Aaron Henry was, was at that point. Uh, in his career where he's just dominating and taking over games. Um, it looked like right. Langford had found his shot. Um, right. And then you get Maryland and it kind of, they do kind of almost the exact same thing they did in the first one. Well, it was a little different. Remember Michigan state got out to a big lead early. Yeah. 23 to 11 right off the bat. Yeah. Right. And then it turned. And from, and, and from that point forward, um, I think you had, 
you had a repeat of the first game mm. to a large extent. It played out a little differently, but um, in terms of the specifics, but the general tenor of it was this is just not a good matchup for Michigan State for whatever reason. I mean, Maryland's profile was very similar to Michigan State's overall. They were not a great team, mm. but their matchup with Michigan State, it just became very clear to me for whatever reason, those guys felt like they had MSU's number, and so did MSU. Yeah, yeah. They just did not. Michigan State, after that big run early, they just did not, over like the last, wherever it was, 30 minutes of the game, they looked like a team that didn't believe they would win. And Maryland's guys were the exact opposite. Um, and that's something you can't have, obviously, at that level of competition. So, yeah, they end up with the loss. And that Consequently, put them in a play-in game as opposed to, who knows, if they'd won that Maryland game, you would have had Michigan in the next round. Even if you lose that, I think there's a chance they would have been a 10, but they definitely would have been an 11 out of the play-in game. Mm. Utah State and Syracuse ended up. Yep, and as it said, they get the play-in game against UCLA. Um and really timing wasn't much of an issue there because they were already there in Indianapolis. Uh, right. They had an early exit in the Big Ten tournament. Um, and the it's, it had already been pushed back a day anyway um, where the playing games being played on, what that was a Wednesday night, I think? Thursday. Thursday night, yeah. Okay, and then everything starts on Friday. Friday. Yeah, okay. Yep. Yeah, um... Again, a game where Michigan State seemed to be in control for a lot of it, but it was, it was, um, I think, not. It, it was a, an unjustified feeling because I, I believe I said this in our post game that night. I had said beforehand, if it's a pretty game, meaning. There's a lot of offensive flow. It's up and down. Teams are scoring a lot. They're shooting well. That doesn't bode well for Michigan State. That's UCLA's game. Mm-hmm. And I think even when Michigan State was winning, it was that kind of game. You didn't see Michigan State impose the kind of physicality they did in some of those Big Ten games down the stretch that we talked about that they won. It was a free-flowing, pretty game for the most part. And in the end, UCLA was a little better at that. But again, we go back to all that being said. All that would have taken in regulation was a defensive rebound off a missed free throw. Mm -hmm. And they don't get it. UCLA ties it. Michigan State still has a chance to go win the game. And they have a horrible possession that ends with Aaron Henry going one-on-one and launching a 17-footer. That was an air ball. And UCLA could have even won it in regulation the way it played out. They mm-hmm. still had time. Um, and then in overtime, Michigan State clearly had nothing left. And UCLA went on to win, and that was that. It was the end of the season. Um, disappointing, unfortunate, but I think all in all, probably a fair representation of what this, where this team was overall. Mm-hmm. You know, you wanted to believe that maybe they had a little run in them. Um, but in the end, they, they couldn't make those plays. I'll return to that theme. They couldn't make the plays that a normal Michigan State team would make. 
Yeah. Not a great Michigan State team, just a normal one, an average one. That they couldn't is, do those things. That one just drives you nuts because that's like one of the ones on the line graph where you look and it's like a minute left, 95% chance to win. Right. And then – loss <laughs> you know it's like, right uh-huh. and and again that's a sign of a team that was very flawed in a lot of ways and not least of which was its level of confidence and ability to translate confidence into actual play on the court mm-hmm. a confident team makes those plays they didn't and you know it cost them it cost them a win it cost them a chance to as you say we might be doing a Sweet 16 preview mm-hmm. instead, the way things. But, I, but I'm also not convinced of that. I know UCLA rolled BYU, and I thought BYU was very beatable. But then again, I'm, I, I know this Michigan State team. Who's to say they would have beaten BYU? We don't yeah. know. Yeah. Just because UCLA did doesn't mean this Michigan State. This Michigan State team was not good enough at any point to feel confident about anything like that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? It was moment to moment, game to game. I think when you look back at it, though, again, for me, the biggest takeaway is they found a way to get in, mm-hmm. which in the end was all that really mattered. Once you get beyond, you know, what we thought might be possible in the preseason, which was, you know, maybe Big Ten title contention, maybe a, a trip to the Final Four, you know, those things seemed possible in the beginning. By By the end of... December, you kind of knew mm-hmm. that wasn't in the cards. And, um, yeah. It, it, so I think once that faded, then you knew, hey, this team, um, just has to find a way. And they did against all odds, totally improbable mm-hmm. that they pulled it off, but they did. And so credit goes to the, these players and that staff for as limited as they were. To pull that off, boy, you know, that, that's something. Yeah. And that, that, that was incredible. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> I mean, you know, when Aaron had, you mentioned Aaron Henry, Aaron Henry elevating his game finally to the point that most of the time over the last 10 games or so that they played, most of the time he was often the best player on the floor on either team and truly began to finally reach his potential as a guy who could impact the game in all phases. Mm-hmm. wasn't perfect, but he was delivering consistently in a way that they, this team desperately needed him to. He was the team leader in points, rebounds, assists, and steals. <laughs> yeah, and I think he was a close second in blocks, too. Yeah, Bingham at 1.4, he had 1.3, almost. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was a tremendous season. I mean, if Michigan State had had anything close to what was expected in terms of team success, we would have been talking about Aaron Henry as a first-team All-Big Ten guy. Mm -hmm. We would have. I mean, that's the kind of year he He had. He did start off a little slow, though, especially with the shooting. He did. He did. But but the way he closed and the teams he did it against – if we were talking about Michigan State having the kind of season that Purdue had, let's say, mm-hmm. I'm gonna guess Aaron Henry would have been a first team all Big Ten guy. Um it's a little bit tough to make those but but honestly, I think his season was good enough. Over that 
last stretch of the season, who was who was a better player in the Big Ten overall? I don't think there was anybody. I mean, people no. might talk about Iu or people like that. I don't. When you total everything up, I don't think so. I don't think there was anybody better as an all-around player, mm-hmm. or or a guy who was more important to his team's success. Yeah, he he got a little bit of the uh, misfortune of having his you know good parts of the season at the end, where sort of it's already been made up in a lot of people's minds. But that's true. On the other hand, he he had that part where Michigan State absolutely needed it. Yeah, to win those games. So you can look at it both ways. But yeah, I mean, look, we, we start with him. He's clear MVP of the team, no question. Um, you mentioned it was kind of a rough start shooting the ball, but I think most people's impressions of Aaron Henry are going to be positive ones because of the way he played those big games and the way he closed it out. And we're, we're of the belief that, you know, it's a matter of time until he announces his intention to go into the draft and stay there. And I think, I think he played well enough to actually give himself a chance to be drafted. Mm-hmm. I think at a minimum he's going to get an opportunity to play in the G League next year if that's what he wants to do. Um, he showed enough. You know, I think somebody's going to take a flyer on him. I, I mean, I'm no draft expert, but I would kind of be a little bit surprised if he doesn't have somebody take a flyer on him in the second round, mm-hmm. given the way he played. Um, yeah, there are things his, he needs to work on. There's no question. He, the, the shot needs to become better. But you know, an NBA team is not going to need him to play the way Michigan State did. That's important to remember. Yeah. You know? He's, he'd and he's be an important piece to just defending people on the perimeter. Yeah. His ability to defend, his ability to rebound, um, you know, to give you occasional scoring. I, I can see NBA teams looking at his frame, his athleticism, and saying there's something to work with here. Mm. You know? And it's I, not, not like saying, his shot is, like, fundamentally flawed. I mean – you could see his shot getting better. I mean, it did get better throughout the course of this year. I It did. I think that, you know, his – It's a little he bit – He kind of waxes – he waxes and wanes, at least over the course of his MSU career, he waxed and waned based on the confidence that he was feeling. As a mm-hmm. shooter, it was a big thing for him. Yeah. yeah. You could see when he was kind of aiming it. Yeah. Uh, and then Josh Langford, um, he winds up – Playing 28 minutes a game, 9.7 points, 3.6 rebounds, uh, almost two assists, just under a steal, um, 34% from three. I mean, exceeded my expectations for for the year. Listen, he, he about doubled the minutes per game that I thought were realistically possible. So on that front alone, it was remarkable. You know, there will always be people that criticize Josh because you know, he came in as McDonald's All-American. It's fair to say he never met those expectations. Um, even when he was healthy, he didn't quite play at that level. Um, you can criticize his shot selection, as many do, and there's a legitimacy to that, those arguments to some extent. Um, but the fact remains, this team needed him to be the guy that he was this year, to play those minutes, to give him that presence. I thought down the stretch, he finally became the defensive player that Tom Izzo always claimed he was. Mm -hmm. He always talked about him as a great defender, and I would think, I don't know, man. I don't see it. Like, he was never the best defender 
on any Michigan State team he played on. And yet Izzo would talk about him that way. Finally, down the stretch this year, I thought he played at something close to that level. Mm-hmm. And that was really important. He had the game. Who was the game? Who was the game against that down the stretch? He had like 16 rebounds. Was that oh. IU or was that Michigan? That was, was I one of the that two. was Michigan. Let me see here. Michigan? It was incredible. I mean, it was one of the best wing rebounding games I've ever seen at Michigan State. It was a Charlie Bell, Denzel Valentine level performance. Oh, that was Illinois. Illinois. Okay. Yeah. Went a little further back. Just phenomenal. You know, so he did. And that was something like, you know, this guy for four years, five years, I've been talking about how, you know, he's got it in him to be a better rebounder than he's shown. Well, at times he finally showed that this year. Mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, I, I think it was a triumph just for Josh to play and then to actually contribute and be part of that turnaround even better. I mean, I, I think just on any level that was fair to evaluate with Josh Langford, I think this season was a big success. Mm-hmm. And I actually got the feeling that if, if it was a full season, um, you know, if you had your typical uh, – yeah. amount of games in the beginning um and you had your spaced out properly he may have even had a better year because might have it seemed was... like his shot kind of struggled quite a bit at the beginning but then slowly started to come around and by the end he was he was really starting to hum there and if he would have just yeah. had like another two weeks or something like that you know two or three weeks he could have really maybe dialed so in. on the other hand i'm not sure he could have survived another two or three That's weeks true. yeah so you just have to – if it was a no, more games with a normal schedule, I'd yeah, probably find to agree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so then you got the – Joey Hauser, had, who averaged 9.7 points a game, 21 and a half minutes, uh, 5.6 rebounds, uh, 1.4 assists, 0.4 steals, 0.2 blocks, almost two turnovers, uh, 34% from three, 47% from the floor, 72 from the line. Yeah, I mean, not not a complete disaster of a year, but a big disappointment. Mm-hmm. And let's remember, I mean, Joey Hauser was regularly putting up double-doubles. He had that huge game, even as late as that loss to Wisconsin. Yeah. You know? So Joey Hauser in the first part of this season was looking pretty much like the guy we thought he'd be. Mm-hmm. You know, a consistent off a consistent rebounder, um, a big time shooter, but yet a guy who could go down the blocks and score too. And then it just kind of all went awry. And there may have been some health related reasons. You know, he had some knee issues at a certain point. Um, I don't think it ever kept him out of a game completely, but it definitely compromised him for a while. Maybe that had more of an impact than we think. Um, I think he definitely, for whatever reason, he definitely had his confidence shaken. There were times yeah. in the Big Ten season where Joey Hauser was just not a very confident basketball player. And yet, you know, there were enough flashes that you'd say, there's a there's a guy in there who's as good as the guy we thought we were getting. Mm-hmm. I Here's what I think has to change for him. I think you start every discussion regarding him with the defensive end because that's where he really struggled he just couldn't find guys to guard i mean there were guys who had no brandon johns blasting him in the post come on 
That shouldn't ever happen. And yet it did. Um, brain fog moments defensively where he just wasn't locating guys, got in bed, you know, closed on a shooter in bad position. I mean, it was just every error you could make, he was making. And so that's where it has to start for him, I think, is what can he be defensively? Can he get to a point that he's at least credible? He's at least playable. Because in a lot of the season, he really wasn't. Mm-hmm. And if he can't do that, then you can't play him a lot, you know, at Michigan State. You just can't. Um, so it has to start there. And then I think after that, I would really like to see Joey Hauser kind of redefine his game and become more of a a guy who's oriented on the blocks. Mm-hmm as opposed to floating on the arc a lot. We know Joey can shoot. I've got no problem with that. But he needs to be more focused on getting around the rim because I think he's actually got good game down there, and Michigan State needs it. Mm -hmm. So those are the things I look to that that have to change for him. I think it's possible. I still think you, you go into next year, and you can realistically think Joey Hauser could be a big part of their success. He could be. Yeah. But things have to change in order for that to happen. Mm. Uh, and then you got Rocket, seven point seven. Well, only twenty two point six minutes a game. Seven point seven points, um, one point seven rebounds, two point seven assists, twenty five percent from the three point line, thirty three percent from the field, and seventy eight percent from the line. Um. I've I've said I know I said this already in this podcast. I've thought about it deeply, and I can't think of anybody who's ever gone through a season quite like his at Michigan State, who had the buildup and also had the actual performance, at least for a period of time in college, the way Rocket Watts did, and then had a season like this. I've talked about it so much. I mean, you you could talk it to death and you're not saying anything new or particularly insightful mm-hmm. the bottom line is statistically when you add everything up the role he was in the usage he had and the way he performed you could make a good case that he was one of the worst players in the big 10 um you definitely could mm-hmm. and that's something i never thought i'd be saying um and it wasn't just offensive stats either he went through periods this year where he really struggled defensively Again, I never thought I'd say that because his freshman year, even when his offense wasn't clicking, he was still reliable defensively. That's why they were still playing it. Hmm. And that just didn't happen this year. So, you know, I, I I think he's a likable kid, and I want him to succeed. If that can be at Michigan State in a different role, great. If it means he's got to move on, uh, like I said earlier, I hope he kills it. Um but I, I just have a feeling, based on the things I've heard and just kind of looking at how things unfolded, that it's probably more likely than not that he's going to be somewhere else next year. And that might be in everybody's best interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you got Gabe Brown, 20 minutes a game, 7.2 points, um, 2.7 rebounds, uh, half an assist, half a steal, half a block. Um Forty-seven percent from the floor, eighty-eight percent from the line, forty-two percent from three. Yeah, you know, 
it's the same story you've had really all three years with Gabe. And in the end, you could think about some very good things he did, but yet you're left wanting more. Yeah. And, you know, people make a big deal about the altercation with Izzo at halftime of the UCLA game, blah, 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 blah. Um, look, you can't rule out that Gabe might transfer. I mean, anything's possible. Um, but assuming he's returning, I think he's a really key guy for next year because Gabe Brown has to finally for himself and for Michigan State has to finally unlock the key to finding consistency. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as that. We know he's an outstanding shooter. He's proven that now. We know he's a very, very gifted athlete. He has to, and he's shown flashes of being able to do other things. He's shown flashes of being able to go to the rim and go off the dribble. He's shown flashes of being a combative rebounder. He's shown flashes of being an effective defender with a seven-foot wingspan on the perimeter. But he hasn't put all of those things together yet into a consistent package. And that's the intangible, but it's the intangible that matters more than all the tangibles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You know, he has to find that. <clears throat> and if he does, Michigan State becomes a much more dangerous team. And they need it from him. As a guy going into his fourth year next year, they need him to be that guy. Mm. They need him to take the step that Aaron Henry took in terms of his mentality, in terms of his focus. Yeah, and he, I think he was probably hurt the most, um, at least peripherally, by – Rocket Watson kind of not being able to just own the point guard position because then Rocket moves into the off guard spot, which really kind of leaves Gabe out a little bit. Um, Gabe started really well. He started off really well this year. He had, you know, several good games in the beginning. And then it seemed like during the middle of the year, it kind of trailed off and he had COVID. and then, and that shouldn't that shouldn't be forgotten either. Yeah, that he did he did actually contract COVID during the season. You know, there was a recovery process, and that that shouldn't be omitted. That's part of it. Yeah. And then he was starting to come around uh, toward the end, uh, but it was mostly just uh, from the perimeter. Right, and and that look, they need jump shooters, and if you've got more dynamic players on offense, there's a big role for a spot-up jump shooter. Mm-hmm. And and you hope that their team next year can make better use of that skill that Gabe clearly has. Yeah, because um, it was affecting the other team when Gabe was out there. You could tell. Yeah. But at the same time, I think Gabe needs to be more than that. And he has it in him to be more than that. He just has to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Malik Hall, 17.5 minutes a game. Um, he averaged five points, four point two rebounds, one point three assists, uh, just under a half a steal, not much for blocks. Um, forty eight percent from the floor, thirty six percent from three, and sixty nine percent from the line. A world of potential, you know, and and down the stretch, you know, you think about he was the only guy in that Maryland game in the Big Ten tournament to really show up. Mm-hmm. But he was playing, he was another guy, and you could say this about a lot of guys, he was another guy, though, that was playing his best basketball late. You know, he he really kind of disappeared for some stretches. 
Mm-hmm. This and it was on the one hand, it was hard to understand why, and yet on the other hand, we mentioned his familial issues. Maybe that played into it more than anybody thought. Um, but he's a guy I hope comes back because I think they need him. Mm-hmm. You know, he he gives them a guy who at his best is a defender, is a rebounder. And a guy who can still be, I think, a very good offensive player. You know, 36% from three got elevated late in the season. He was actually hitting with more regularity late in the year. Um, he's also got some ability to go past people, to go off the dribble. He's also shown some post-up ability. He could be a very versatile offensive player. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the consistency, again, needs to come to come through. I guess the big thing with him is, he he got a little bit of an increase in minutes from last year, but basically there just wasn't a whole lot of improvement anywhere. You know, it's almost the same exact rerun of the season he had last year. Eight for 22, yeah. three this year, seven for 21 last year. You know, 59% from the floor last year, 52% from the floor this year. Like, I think his highs, I think though his high. remember last year he had that Seton Hall game and then nothing like that the rest of the way this year i think his highs were a little more frequent and a little more sustainable Mm -hmm. because even if he's an improved three-point shooter overall you don't expect him to go out and hit four threes in a game typically yeah so you know when when malik hall is scoring you know a couple buckets off putbacks you know one where he posts somebody up and then he hits a jumper that's a malik hall i can believe in you know, because that's sustainable to me. Yeah. Uh, and then Foster Lawyer, 16.6 minutes a game, um, 4.2 points, 1.6 rebounds, 2.3 assists. Uh, he shot 32% from three, 29% from the floor, and 88% from the line. The, those shooting numbers are a little bit skewed because he tried to play about, it must have been at least four or five games with that shoulder that was yeah. – it up ending the season and he clearly was he had had he, up to that point was actually shooting the ball very well mm-hmm. um, one of the few guys who was as a matter of fact it's a shame because I think Foster clearly had his best season not not that he was fantastic but he became a passable defensive player most of the time had a real knack for taking charges Mm-hmm. Um, offensively, I thought there were stretches this season where, again, it's damning with faint praise, but I thought the offense looked its best and the ball moved the best when he was on the floor. He was a shooting threat where they didn't have anybody else at that position who was for long stretches of the season. Um, I thought he had, you know, when he was healthy, I thought he had carved out a claim to a role that, mm-hmm. okay, this is a guy who can play competent basketball for 8, 10, 12 minutes a night. Mm-hmm. Never going to be a quality starter, but he can be that. And then he hurt his shoulder, and as I say, there are a lot of rumors around. You you don't know what entirely to believe. I, this is the one thing I would say. I would be surprised by one thing. I would be surprised if Foster Lawyer transfers out to play for another program. That would surprise me. Mm-hmm. The other options on the table would not surprise me, which means he stops playing basketball, goes into coaching, um, just stops playing basketball, period, and continues his education, 
or re- decides to return to play another year at Michigan State. I think all those are on the table. I would be surprised to be transfers elsewhere. Mm-hmm. In part because I don't know how anybody at this point would take him, given his health. You know, you're going to commit a scholarship to a guy you're not even sure is going to be healthy enough to play. That seems a big risk, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, Then Julius Marble, uh, just over nine minutes a game, four points, uh, two rebounds, just under a turnover a game, 57% from the floor, 68% from the line. And he, hundred percent from three, he hit one for one. Yeah, um, he was the feast or famine guy this year. You know, he had the huge game against Duke, and then he had a couple of other games this year where he was double digit score was very productive. Mm-hmm. But those would be surrounded by or followed by stretches where he just didn't impact games at all. Um, and and in some of those instances, it's because he didn't play very much. But here's the thing. I think, you know, Julius Marble has shown that he has offensive potential. He's shown potential as a low post scorer. He can also shoot. He's pretty good. If you remember, he hit a good percentage on, say, 12 to 15 foot jumpers. Yeah, he really was. Yeah. He can, he can be effective offensively. The question I have is, can he do the other things well enough? to warrant playing him. And that's where I have my questions. I think down the stretch, he was better defensively than he'd been. Mm-hmm. You know, he was able to use his body a little bit and, and against some of those behemoths they were going up against down the stretch. And he, and he hung in there. He wasn't great, but he hung in there. He wasn't a disaster. There were other parts of the season where defensively he was nightmarish, mm-hmm. just really bad. He's also never figured out how to be an effective rebounder which is weird to me because looking at him his body and his athleticism in theory should allow him to be a pretty decent rebounder but it goes to show you that's not the whole equation yeah we i mean there is a among guys who are really good at it there is an innate sense they have of knowing where the ball's going to go or at the very least having very quick reactions mm. for ball that he just doesn't seem to have. And so I know people get enamored of offense because that's the easiest thing to see. And I understand why if you're focusing on that side of things, you look at Julius Marble and you say, why doesn't he play more? Well, because Michigan State, winning basketball isn't just about that. Anywhere it's not just about that. Mm-hmm. And he hasn't proven definitively that he's good enough in those other areas to play a bigger role than he's playing. Now down the stretch, it kind of evolved that it was he and Bingham with Sissoko playing a relief pitcher role, kind of sharing that position. And it was okay. Michigan State was getting decent production at that position, much better than they did earlier in the season. But I don't know how much better Julius Marble is going to get. And if he is going to get better, it's going to be because he figured out a way to get better defensively and he figured out a way to rebound. Mm -hmm. Because that's what's got to change. Uh, And then Marcus Bingham, 11 and a half minutes a game, three and a half points, um, 3.2 rebounds, uh, 0.6 steals, 1.4 blocks, um, 50% from the floor, 73% from the line. 
Uh, and zero. He didn't take any threes this year. Yeah. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, those numbers don't do justice to what Marcus Bingham became. Mm-hmm. I'd say over the last three weeks or so of the season, Marcus Bingham finally turned a corner. Now, he's got much further to go. But down the stretch, Marcus Bingham gave this team a defensive presence that they lacked. He became a much more effective rebounder than he'd ever been before. And just by virtue of being on the court and being seven feet tall and reasonably active, he found his way into pretty decent point production. Yeah. And and this is – I mean, there's a point earlier in the season where we were questioning, you know, whether Marcus Bingham was even going to see the floor anymore. I mean, that's right. That's right. And and with good reason because he wasn't producing. But, you know, and, and this is an old saw, but it, it is such because it's true about big kids. Most of the time with big men, you don't know when the light is going to switch on. And for some of them, it never switches on. But it's unpredictable in that way. I felt like with about three weeks or so left in the season, the light switched on for Marcus Bingham, and it pretty much stayed on. The games where he wasn't as productive were the ones like the Maryland game where it was just a bad matchup for him. Mm. By and large, he was able to be reasonably effective against everybody else. Uh, I think he really improved his, his defensive play. He's always been a shot blocker, but that's not the story. In order yeah. for the shot blocking to play, you got to be able to do the other things. You got to be able to to give a reasonable counting of yourself in post defense. Generally, you've really got to be effective in playing in pick and roll and handle responsibilities out on the floor. And that's where Marcus had always really struggled. Well, he's gotten a lot better there. And I thought down the stretch he started to solve that. And if he can solve that then his length comes into play because you can keep him on the floor. Mm-hmm. And we saw that consistently, right, yeah. down the stretch, that his length played, and he gave Michigan State a rim protection element that they did not have. Yeah, And you, you need that. In modern basketball, you know, I had a conversation about this the other day, and, and it was something I'll take a mea culpa on. We talked a lot early in the season that we thought – Maybe the best lineup for Michigan State would feature Malik Hall at the four and Joey Hauser at the five. And there were reasons for that. I don't think it was entirely wrong to think that way. But what I didn't fully appreciate at the time and have since come around to is that in the modern game, with the way teams emphasize driving the ball to the rim, Mm -hmm. if you don't have at least a deterrent in the back end, somebody who can alter a shot, block a shot, just make a shot tougher. If you don't have that element, you are re- you better have lockdown guys on the perimeter. So opposition guards are never getting to the rim in the first place. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to, that's hard to find. So I think I didn't appreciate fully how much that was going to matter and I think you noticed Michigan State become a better defensive team in part when Marcus Bingham was more impactful. Yeah. He gave him that, you know? Hey, he And he actually has the highest box plus minus on the team over the course of the year. Yeah. Well, th- th- we said it here a few times. They were at their best with lineups featuring Marcus Bingham. Yeah. Now, 
that also highlights a couple of things that need to change for him for next year. I think it's the eternal discussion with Marcus Bingham. If he could ever find a way to add some weight and get a little stronger, that would be good. Hmm. Okay, You hope with a more regular offseason that that's more likely. The second thing, though, is I think he's got to improve his stamina. You know, I, I don't think he's going to yeah. be a 30-minute-a-night guy next year, no matter what. But I, I think they would ideally like to have him be a guy that could give them maybe 18 to 20, mm-hmm. which he was kind of getting toward at the end of the season. But some of that comes down to how hard can he go. Yeah. You know? So that's got to improve, too. Because you need Bingham at, like, full strength for him to be really impactful. Correct. It, it it shows up so obviously when he's tired. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. He's got to be, he's got to be, have his wind if he's going to be able to really impact games the way you need him to. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's one of the few silver linings to this season. Yeah, Maybe I agree. One, other than making the tournament was that it feels like Marcus Bingham finally began to find himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and we, they continues in the next season yeah and then aj hogard um 13.2 minutes 2.5 points um just under two rebounds a game two assists um 30 from the floor 60 percent from the line 16 percent from three um <laughs> i think it's pretty clear where i stand on aj hogard I'm I'm just not a believer that he can help Michigan State at this level. I'm just not. Um, his, I, don't, I mean, I looked at his numbers like historically compared to uh, other Michigan State freshman point guards, uh, and they just don't stack up. No, they don't. No, and and I, I just to me this is this is where I come down. I think that with guys. There have been a lot of guys who as freshmen struggled at that position. You know, look look back at Mateen Cleve's freshman season. He was still kind of out of shape. He was not healthy. He was coming off the rollover that he mm-hmm. was part of when he was a high school senior. Um, Denzel Valentine, as a freshman, struggled at times. People may not remember it clearly, but he was not great. Turnover numbers were high, didn't shoot a great percentage, you know. But those guys and others like them, you all, you still knew when you watched them, this guy's got quote-unquote it, Mm -hmm. meaning he has a feel, he has vision, he sees the floor the way a floor leader, a playmaker has to. And I include Valentine in that because – you saw signs from those guys, even in the struggles, that they had the capability of being a guy who could play effectively in those roles. It was just going to be a matter of getting more experience, getting into better shape, etc. Mm-hmm. You could say A.J. Hogard needs to get in better shape, needs more experience, but the problem I've got is I don't see the signs. Yeah. I don't, I don't see, I see people on social media talk about vision i don't see it (laughs) pun intended i don't see any signs that he has the kind of court vision that you need to have to be an effective playmaking guard 
at this level. I just don't see it. And, and if he doesn't have that, then I don't know how he fits into a picture at Michigan State because he might have the size to play off the ball, but he doesn't have the game for it. He's mm-hmm. not a good shooter. I think that's going to be a struggle for him to become even a passable shooter. And I wonder about him athletically as a wing, guarding wings. I don't know that he's got it in him. He's just, I'm he's just, awfully big. You know, I mean, he's like 200, yeah. over 200, yeah. you know, 6'3. I might just need to lose a little weight. Well, I think that's clearly true. But again, I go beyond. It's one thing if you'd say, well, that's the problem. You know, Denzel Valentine had to tighten up his body. Team Cleaves had to tighten up his body. But that wasn't, that was something that you said because you could see the other parts of their games and say, okay, if they can do that, these other strengths that they have will shine through. My problem is I don't see the strengths. So he gets in better shape. Okay, that's cool. Does it make a major difference? I don't know that I believe that it does. Look, he may be part of this team going forward. And if it's, you know, if this is a Tyson Walker, Jaden Akins point guard tandem with Hogard as the third point guard, let's say, mm-hmm. okay, I'm okay with that. Because he's not going to be impacting games very much. And And look, I could be completely wrong. That's possible, you know, but I just personally, I do not see the signs. And I've, and in this case, at least I've at least got the credibility of my conviction going back to when he was recruited. Cause I didn't understand it then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've been pretty consistent on him from back then. Uh, and then Kithier, 10 minutes, uh, 2.4 points, 2.5 rebounds, 65% from the floor, uh, which leads the team, 76% from the free throw line, no threes. Yeah, you know, Thomas's minutes really dried up at the end of the season, which was also the point that Michigan State started to find itself at the five, right? As mm-hmm. Bingham emerged. As Marble was a little more consistent, as Sissoko started to play a little bit more, got healthier. Um, and that's fine. I've been a big booster of Thomas Kithier's because I think he knows how to play. He does things that Michigan State values in its program, meaning um, he's responsible defensively. He doesn't blow assignments. He may get physically outdone, but he doesn't blow assignments. There aren't mental errors. He's um, an effective rebounder at times, especially on the offensive end, keeping balls alive, uh, great pick setter. People may think those things don't matter. They're wrong. They mm-hmm. matter. But I think the point is, even as someone who is a fan of Thomas, his ceiling was the lowest of all the Michigan State guys at that position. And so – if if the other guys are not being responsible in the areas they need to be, then you have to play Thomas because he's at least going to give you that. Mm. But what I thought changed is a guy like Bainham especially started to figure it out. And if that's the case, well, then you got to play Marcus more. Yeah. Because he can just do a lot more than Kithier. So that's what changed. I, I thought Thomas had a decent year given what, what the expectations are and what you ask of him. I mm-hmm. thought he played reasonably well um, in that role. 
But, uh, you know, as I say, if, if some of these guys have truly found it, then a limited role, and we talked about the outset, it's possible from what I hear, he may not be part of the team next year. He's another guy. I'd kind of be more surprised by his transferring out to play for another school more than any other outcome. Mm. Um, same as with lawyer for different reasons, but um, we'll see. Well, in Kithier, you can say that a lot of the improvement that maybe a Marble or a Bingham and um, Sissoko or whoever may have made, it's because they're chasing playing time that Kithier was, was Correct. soaking up. Correct. You know? So he did have a role. Correct, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's and that's from from the beginning of things, beginning of the Tom era regime. Um, he has used playing time as a teaching tool. It is a way to get guys to improve in the ways they need to improve to play winning basketball. And you're right. I think that clearly plays a role. Mm-hmm. You know, being able to hold guys responsible. Uh, and then Matty Sissoko, five point four minutes a game. Uh, not much time. 1.1 points, 1.8 rebounds, um, 0.4 blocks, 58% from the floor, 43% from the line. Uh, you know, he showed enough flashes that you understand why he was highly regarded. But he was also, kind of as expected, very, very raw. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no question that the physical tools are immense. He's strong. He's athletic. He can run. Uh, he attacks the ball as a rebounder, which I like. Um, he's definitely got potential as a rim protector. No question about that. And I think at times he showed flashes offensively that maybe surprised you a little bit. You know, like I can actually see Matty Sissoko at some point down the line being a reasonably good low post option. Yeah. He showed enough. Um but how long it's going to take for it all to come together, that's the open question. He's another guy, I would say, you don't know when the light's going to come on. That's the unpredictable part. Mm-hmm. But if it does, it could it could happen suddenly. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, this guy could go from a five-minute-a-night cameo guy to a guy you're playing 20, 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. And you can't keep him off the floor. He's absolutely that profile. I think he obviously... You know, this is a guy who I think was really affected by the COVID situation. He didn't get a normal first off season coming into the year. Then he got sick, lost a lot of weight that he had gained. So he had to build that back up. But by the end of the season, man, he was, he was a guy who had a role. It was limited, but he would come in, play those five or six minute segments, mm-hmm. usually in the first half and he'd hold his own, you know? So I think. The future with him is still very bright. I'm not down on Matty Sissoko relative to when the season started in terms of what his ultimate future is Mm. um, for Michigan State. I just think, you know, people who see, you know, a kid in the top 50 and think that that automatically translates to instant production, it doesn't, you know. And this is an example of why. He needs time. Mm. But I think he's going to... I would be surprised if at some, provided we have a normal off season and all that, if at some point next season, Matty Sissoko isn't forcing Tom Izzo's hand to play him more, to find more minutes. I'd be surprised by that. I think I saw enough 
to feel confident that it's coming. Mm-hmm. And, and it probably will come at some point next year. I'm not saying at some point next year he becomes a starter or becomes an all big 10 guy or anything grandiose like that, but that at some point next season, he's doing enough things that Izzo feels are necessary for his team's success that he's forcing him to play him more minutes. You know, we've seen guys do this. Um, you know, Draymond Green did it as a freshman. Xavier Tillman did it as a freshman. Mm. You may take Maddie until he's a sophomore, but I think he's, I think that will happen. I think he's going to find a way to do something like that. Yeah. He's got that kind of that it factor for the big where you look yeah. at it and you're like, that guy's going to, he can change the game. <laughs> I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of one thing, having seen him now for a year. He is, if you get him comfortable and acclimated to everything you're doing, that is a kid who could be an absolutely devastating weapon in transition mm-hmm. as a rim runner. He could be great in that area of the game, but you got to get everything else right. Yeah. All right. Well, any final thoughts as we head into this? I mean, the only other guys we have is on the team is Hoiberg, Gizzo, and uh, Smith. And Smith. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned at the outset. I think at some point there, Jack Hoiberg entering transfer portal you know good luck to him he was here for uh four years um i don't know what his plans are i guess i'd kind of be surprised if he transferred to play for his father because it would probably be a similar situation to the one he's in for michigan state yeah where you know it's going to be tough to play him extended minutes he did actually you know we saw him play a role against michigan for example down the stretch, he played a little bit at times, and I think Jack Hoiberg is good enough to play at a lower D1 level. Yeah. I really do. Uh, but I'm, I'm assuming for now at least that that's his plan, is to find a place where he can play more regular minutes. And, you know, I think he could be okay at the right, if he finds the right fit. I definitely think he showed enough game um, to warrant that, you know, some optimism that he can play. But I guess I, w- I would I would expect that as opposed to his transfer into Nebraska. But who knows? It might be that you know he's just decided he'd like to spend a year playing for his dad. You can't rule that out. Yeah, uh, and then yeah, Izzo and Smith. I mean, Michigan State's program has gotten to the point where we have these like celebrity uh, right. <laughs> walk-ons. Yeah, I mean, neither of them. Did much, obviously, and they're at a different level of walk on than, than Jack Hoiberg. You know, mm-hmm. Jack Hoiberg's a guy who, as I said, I think could play a role at least for a lower echelon D1 team. The, the, the other two kids, I don't think that's in the cards. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're obviously guys with the right last names. Um, and they're, they're a part of the family and the program. And, you know, that's, that's part of what it's all supposed to be about, right? Yeah. All right. Well, any uh, final thoughts on the season, Ron? No, I think we've I think we've covered it. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, we should let just maybe a couple housekeeping notes. I mean, one is, as we've mentioned, this is a wild west kind of year. So, I would anticipate over the next, particularly over the next two three weeks, I think it's entirely possible that we may be back doing more podcasts than we normally would at this time of the year if things are happening with Michigan state. So we'll, we'll obviously keep up. They won't all be as long as this one was, <laughs> uh, but th- we'll, we'll be keeping up with the roster movement and all of that. Hopefully we'll be able at some point this spring and summer 
to get back into recruiting talk mm-hmm. uh, with the 2022 class and beyond. Um, you know, that's dependent upon some things that are out of our control, but um, one way or the other, I'm sure we'll be talking about all of those subjects as well. And then we should probably mention, I don't know if you want to go into it as well, that we're, um, we're soon going to be entering a, a new phase of the, uh, of the podcast. So I just kind of wanted to prepare people for that. Um, not that it's going to cost them anything, but we will have advertising soon, which I guess on a, on a certain level, we, well, not a certain level on reality, we should be thanking everybody who's listening to this because it's their continued interest in the podcast that made it attractive to a company that, that does this kind of stuff that hosts podcasts and, and functions as a, an advertising aggregator for you. Mm. Uh, so thanks to all of you for listening and hanging with us for the last five years. Um, you're part of the reason why we'll be entering that phase and that'll be happening relatively soon. You're not going to notice any difference except there are going to be what? I think three ads per episode or something. Is yeah, that right? Just three, three plugs uh, throughout there. Maybe one and some the of them maybe maybe the ones that you're going to hear camera I read, so you'll get to enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's a the it's a Blue Wire is the company. They're uh, the ones behind the new TE1 um, tight end podcast with um, um, oh, what's his name? He played for Carolina. Jeremy Stevens. No, no. The, oh, Greg Owens or Greg oh, Greg Olson. Sure. Greg Olson. Sure, Greg Olson. Bears, yeah. Bears, and then the uh, Panthers. Right. Um, so yeah, that was a new tight end, and that's actually a really fascinating podcast. So if anyone likes the tight end position, because it gets into that weird analytical stuff, you know, stuff about tight ends <laughs> that you wouldn't normally think about. But uh, yeah, they seem like a cool, cool company. So we're we're happy. Yeah, we're we're. I think speaking for myself, and and hopefully both, I think we're uh, we're excited about. Um, about moving forward that way it's again it's it's not going to change the listening experience as best as we can tell uh just for us we'll move into a new server a new host and um we're going to have some ads now uh but other than that it'll be business as usual yeah uh, and so yeah we hope that you hang with us yeah it's going to be an exciting uh upcoming year i think we got a good recruiting class coming in next year and we'll we'll stay on top of that and until next time The Final Four is not on the schedule. At Granger, we're for the ones who pay attention to every little detail. The ones who fuss, tinker, and sweat the small stuff. Because you know the tiniest thing can make the biggest difference when it comes to keeping business moving. We get it. We're the same way. Offering access to product experts to help you quickly and easily find what you need. So whatever your industry, you know you're always getting professional-grade products. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.